All right. So, <laughs> this is a series, five-part series called Very Good. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, the title was a little misleading. Uh, I'm meant to put sexuality instead of sex. doesn't mean we won't talk about sex, uh, but I think sex scares people. Um, basically, we're, the big question, there's two big questions we're going to answer, and that is, what does it mean to be a man? What's it mean to be a woman? Um, so it's broad. That's why it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be married uh, to, to appreciate uh, this, whole, this whole series. It's five parts. It's every Wednesday um, in May. Um, the reason I also thought we could really benefit from this is sex and sexuality are, whether we like, like it or not, it's part of the American experience. Uh, there's a big war going on right now in the Southern Baptist Convention this week over just comments that uh, one of the Southern Baptist presidents said uh, about a woman who was being abused and it just showed a lot of um, neglect and, and uh, tone deafness to, to women. And um, So right now our country and our, our Western culture is just going through a sexual revolution. Uh, and right now if we as a church don't speak clearly and confidently and biblically to human sexuality, uh, our people are going to pick it up somewhere. Um, so we don't need to be drowned out by, um, by TV, by media, um, because the world has plenty to say about sex. Um, the Bible has plenty to say about sex. Um, so I don't know about y'all, we'll talk about this later, but I grew up in a church did not talk about sex. Um, and that's because our world has perverted sexuality so much that we feel like we just need to kind of... Uh, but the truth is, sex and marriage and manhood and womanhood, gender, are all over the Bible. Uh, and so that's the reason we're going to have this uh, little series. I really think y'all are going to enjoy this. Let's open up in prayer before we begin. Father, uh, there's so much here for us to unpack and so much here uh, for us to learn and grow. Father, I pray that if nothing else, uh, that we, that you um, disclose these truths to us so that we can be better men, better women, better fathers, better mothers, better husbands, better wives, and ultimately better followers of your son Jesus and to come to a greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. These are the free books we're giving. Um, if one per couple. If you don't have one, um, pick them up. I'll go ahead and here's... Everybody gets one of these. Can get you a book. That's written by Owen Strand and Gavin Peacock. Um, Owen is the director of the School of Public Theology at Midwestern. Uh, Gavin um, has uh, played, he played uh, Chelsea, at Chelsea, if anybody's big soccer uh, He was an athlete in, uh, in England. He now pastors a church in Canada. And he's now, Gavin's actually, Owen used to be the director of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, now Gavin is, I believe. Um, and so I really, I commend that resource to you. Um, might be going over a D group. This may be our book. This is just one of the best, most concise books I've found on um, broad overview of human sexuality. 
Okay, so tonight we're beginning our very good series. You better be ready for questions. This is interactive. It's not preachy. Um, my first question, where did I get the title from? Does anybody know? It's called Very Good. Where, where, where does that come from? Why would I come up with Very Good? Genesis 1. What's the title? Very Good. Very Good. That's right. Very good. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Taylor, what, where, specifically where? Like what is it? What's... what's, what's What's Moses say? After he makes me a woman. It's 29. Well, okay. For verse 31. Uh, God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. God saves the crescendo of his creation on the sixth day. It's the, the apex. After There's five days where he creates the world, creates the waters, creates the land, creates the, the skies. Uh, but he saves his final act, if you will, for the sixth day. First five days, it was good. After the sixth day, it was very good. Um, so there's something about man, humanity, man and woman, that God says is even better than everything I've made. Um, and so that's where we get the title. Any discussion we have about marriage and gender and sexuality, got to begin with this truth. Men and women are each created equally in the image of God. That's where we start. That's where the whole month begins. And as such, as equal image bearers of God, men and women are equal in dignity, worth, value, uh, what have you. Manhood and womanhood are different expressions of the same divine image. Manhood and womanhood are different expressions of the same divine image. Scripture says that redeemed men and women are actually co-heirs in the kingdom of God. When you think of it like that. Okay, so, actually I'm just going to go ahead and quote Eric Mason here. He says this about man and woman. <clears throat> the man's form and nature are matched by the woman's as she reflects him and complements him as an equal, yet distinct partner. They correspond to each other. In other words, the woman has everything in essence and value that God invested in the man. Therefore, both have an equal relationship with God, but each is distinct in how he or she represents him and lives out their responsibility to him. Okay? So they're equal, equal image bearer, equal in their relationship with God, equal in dignity, equal in worth, but different. Okay? Remember that. The reason that image-bearing is so important uh, to where we begin is because our culture wants to detach human sexuality from the dignity of, of the Imago Dei. When I say Imago Dei, I mean image-bearer, the, the image of God. Okay? So, for instance, um, our culture wants to say that since animals have promiscuous sex, we've got to be like the animals. Okay? Monogamous relationships, that's, that's, we weren't bred to do that. So look at the animals. They just kind of go where they want. We're supposed to go where we want. Now Darwinian science says, no, we're, we're, we're just like the apes. Now Darwinian science says there's not a quantitative difference, it's just, or a qualitative difference, it's just we're just a couple steps up the food chain. And so our culture is feeding us a worldview that says men and women aren't completely different, we're just a different brand. Um, and so our culture is trying to take out uh, the image of God from human sexuality. There's something very unique, very important about human sexuality in the plan of God. Uh, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, if you guys want to turn there, if you have your books or have your Bibles, 
In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, I want you to look at those two verses, verses 6 and 7. Genesis chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Everybody there? God says this to Noah. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. God says this to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There you have it. The first instance of capital punishment in the world. What's he saying? Somebody takes your life, your life's going to be taken. But did you see why at the very end? For God made man in His image. So capital punishment is not ultimately grounded, judge, in preserving the social order. It has that effect. But what we see from the beginning is that it's actually theological. Ultimately, the reason capital punishment exists, at least in the mind of God, is grounded in image-bearing. What God is saying essentially is, you do this to one of my image bearers, you've offended me. Here's your second question this morning. What is the first command that God gives Adam and Eve? What's the first command? First command in the whole Bible. Old Testament reader right here. What, what, what is it? Be fruitful and multiply. Now... Stick it chapter 9, okay? Now, let's read verse 7 of chapter 9. What's verse 7 say? He repeats himself. That's the second time he gave that command. He gives that command to Adam and Eve, then he gives that command to Noah. It's the same command. This mission is so important to God, he repeats himself. Anytime God repeats himself, we need to remember what he says. From the very beginning, human sexuality is integral to God's overarching plan. God's design for humanity is to fill the earth with His image and His image bearers. Okay? From the beginning, human sexuality was not only good and very good, it was a part of God's ultimate plan. Now, as we're going to see with the entrance of sin, we have sexual brokenness. Human sexuality will now have an even greater significance because marriage points to God's plan of salvation in Christ. We're going to get there in a second. Um, I, I, the reason I've kind of gone through all this so far is because I think the church historically has done a horrible job of talking about what it means to be a man and a woman. We take now to nowadays we take our cultural cues from what we see and what we hear from the world, but yet the church has been silent. Oftentimes, um, when I was in high school, I read a book called Every Young Man's Battle. Has anyone ever heard that book? Okay. There was like a flurry of books in the 90s. That, um, Young Man in the Mirror. Has anybody heard that one? Basically, they were books that were designed to make you holy as a teenager. Um, after you read them, you didn't even want to look at a girl. You know, you just felt bad even having the desire in your heart. The problem with these books, and they're not horrible books, I would commend you to read them with something else, um, but the problem was when I got out of high school, I was almost bred to think that sex was bad. That's, that's an incomplete view of sex. What it's missing is sex in the context of what? Marriage. 
And I'm not saying those books didn't enforce that, but it didn't give me a broad view of sex, and broad view of sexuality. I wasn't being told what a man was. I was just being told what a man shouldn't do. There's a difference. I think our culture, Christian culture, has often said, do this, don't do this, when we really need to be hearing, you are this. And so we suffer from a lack of identity. The point of talking about human sexuality is so we can go back in the garden and it says that they looked on their nakedness and they were what? Unashamed. Another question. If God's creation was good, and God creating man was very good, what was the very first thing in God's universe that was not good? Man was alone. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now before I begin, we're kind of getting started now. I want to speak to those who are not married or who are celibate, who have never been married or who used to be married. Singleness is not a punishment by God. We're actually going to talk about this. Paul says it's a gift. So we don't want to succumb to the idea as we go along that if you're not married or you're not in a relationship with a man, that somehow you're less of a woman. Or vice versa. Even though, God, even though it's impossible to define manhood and womanhood without the other, at no point does marriage take away from a woman or a man. Or does it add to a woman or a man? Okay, We went through that with Kelly. My wife could not get pregnant. I mean, you talk about going to baby dedications in, in church, in a big Baptist church. All of our friends are, are, are having these children and, can't, and Kelly can't get pregnant. I mean, that's, that's hurting her identity as a woman, but yet my wife is still barren, technically, and she's still a woman. Because she realized her identity was not in her baby-making, so to speak. Okay, Just like a double mastectomy does not take a woman and make her less. Okay? The fact that I don't have biceps as big as Franklin's does not make him more of a man. Okay, now some, a little bit. <laughs> See, if we take our cultural cues, that means that I, if I want to be a woman, I need to go, I need to first lose some weight because it's beach season. If I'm going to be a woman, I need to, I need to wear a bikini. But if I'm taking my cultural, if I'm taking my cues from the Bible, very different. If I'm taking my cultural cues as a man, I need to, I need to go to CrossFit. Need on the paleo diet. Because men are big, they're strong. The Bible doesn't paint men like that. So some of you might still be going, okay, Avi, I get that, but why this whole deal on human sexuality? I mean, why do you got to talk about sex? I get that, but listen to this. In July of 2015, the channel TLC introduced a new TV series called I Am Jazz. Has anybody seen an episode or know what I'm talking about? Gene's just like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's about the main character is a transgender teenager. In July of 2015, extramarital affair website Ashley Madison was hacked and its private user information was published, exposing 32 million members over 400 of them were pastors, elders, or deacons in their churches. At the New Orleans Theological Seminary where I attend, one of the professors of preaching took his own life. 
because his wife found out that he had been having affairs and going behind her back for years. He couldn't take the shame and shot himself. In August of 2015, the University of Tennessee, which you would expect this from the University of Tennessee, announced a proposal for a brand new gender-neutral pronoun called Z. It's not he, and it's not she, it's Z. It is now a word. If you don't identify as either, you can be a Z. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary introduced their brand new words, one of which was the new transgender honorific called Mix. Not Mr., not Mrs., Mix. M-X. It's a word. You can go by that if you don't want to go by either. If you don't identify as a male or a female, you can go by Mix. Today, today, the Boy Scouts announced, anybody hear this? The Boy Scouts announced that as of 2019, they will be dropping the word boy and they will be admitting women in 2019. In 2015, Walmart and Hallmark introduced gay and lesbian greeting cards after significant lobbying by LGBT groups who insisted that classic categories like wife and husband are too, get this, heteronormative. In 2016, more than 80 LGBT groups formally requested, this is going to hit home for a lot of you, that the NCAA sanction colleges and universities that quote-unquote discriminate against homosexuals by opposing homosexual marriage. So no longer is sports out of the question now. Okay? When I think of that, I'm like, I think liberty, for instance. Liberty would just be gone. There's no more ethics anymore. In 2016, just days after both houses of the Georgia state government passed a religious liberty bill, you don't know what I'm talking about, would give private business owners the freedom of conscience in endorsing homosexual marriage. Companies like Coca-Cola, Disney, Delta, Home Depot, Marriott, UPS, Apple, Microsoft, Twitter, publicly condemned Bill HB 757, all threatening to remove offices in Georgia if it passed. Days later, Nathan Deal did what? Veto. Just last week, according to the Washington Post, Atlanta is out on HQ2 because Georgia has not enacted LGBTQ-friendly legislation. That's according to the Washington Post. Of course, in 2015, the Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges ruled that same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. It's not state rights anymore. Just this month, Army Southern Baptist Chaplain Jerry Scott was charged with unlawful discrimination and faces disciplinary action for declining to preside over a same-sex couple's wedding at a marriage retreat. Armed Forces, NCAA, Corporate America. What's left? This is called a sexual revolution. I'm not. Emb- this is facts right here. And this is all in the last three years. Good news and bad news. Bad news, our world is changing. Good news, this has not changed. Romans chapter 1. If you anybody can, if you all want to turn there real quick. Romans chapter 1 is a virtual play-by-play of the sexual revolution. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. Romans chapter 1, 
verses 21 through 27. Are you all there? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, what's just as striking to me as all that that we just read is how quickly Paul goes from human depravity to sexual depravity. Doesn't take him two verses. As soon as he says God gives them over, he starts talking about homosexuality, which leads us to believe that there's something about sexual depravity that follows human sin. Homosexuality, don't miss this, Homosexuality and transgenderism are not the cause of our nation's problems. They're symptomatic of our nation's problems. You understand what I'm saying? Men are exchanging natural relations with women because they first exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Did you see how his reasoning goes? The sexual revolution begins with a lie which it means that our job as the church is to recover the truth about human sexuality. So I have three questions tonight. Three big ones. Here's the first one. Just answer to yourself. You don't have to raise your hand. What's going on in our country? I think we all have asked that at one point. A lot of people feel like there's a cultural... Um, a lot of people, for, for instance, President Obama made a lot of people feel uneasy like they were losing their country. Now they turn to, to Trump because he's, he's making us not feel like we're aliens anymore. We want conservative roots. But a lot of people are looking at all this kind of political posturing and the, the, the sexual revolution and liberals in the universities and all the media and they feel like they're under attack. Why are we witnessing this colossal shift in human sexuality? Why is it? Well, in short, what we're witnessing today is an attempt to erase the differences between man and woman. Our culture is attempting to neutralize gender. This world is seeking to abolish maleness and femaleness, and it will not stop until it has achieved basic androgyny. We're already paving language. We've already made up the words for it. We're making up the legislation for it. We are headed in a direction where men and women are no longer distinct. What God looked upon and said, this is very good, our world looks on today and says, this is archaic. This is male domination. This is outdated. This is the old world. In fact, I read the other day, this is enslavement of women, they said. 
Our culture is so committed to this trajectory that we're even willing to deny basic biology and science. We're going to get into that. The differentness that God saw as good, the world says is not good. Second question. Why? Why is it all happening? Why, do, why does our world have a problem with being male and female? Why does our culture feel the need to destroy the differences between the sexes? The answer to that question lies in one word. Authority. Just like our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, our world has adopted a sinful, satanic hatred for the idea that God dictates what we are and who we are. world can't stand that. At its very core, I think Robert Washington and I were talking about this the other day, sin is rebellion is what it is. Sin against God's rules. Sin against God's authority. Sin against God's sovereignty. When feminists, for example, shake their fists at the concept of male headship in the home, when sinners seek to change their gender, they're simply recapitulating the first prehistoric sin, which was... I'm not happy with what I am. I want to be like God. Same sin. Third question. If our culture is attempting to eradicate gender differences, why is it so important to defend them? I think that's a pretty reasonable question. Why why does it matter, Avi? Let them just have it. Let them be who they want to be. Why does the church need to get involved in all that mess? Just, just preach the gospel. Don't, don't worry about human sexuality. If that's the way it's going, let it go. I think it's a lot of people's attitude. The answer lies in the word complement. Only theological word I'm going to teach you tonight. I want you to understand it. Complementarianism. Horrible word. It was made up by some old white people. Complementarianism is the idea, you already know it, I'm just giving you a name to it, is the idea that God has created man and woman as equal, yet physically different with different complementing roles. How many people can remember the very first date they had with their spouse? Judge, where'd y'all have your first date? What movie did you go see? Heartbreak Ridge. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Clackums, I think I know where y'all went. Where did we go? I think you told me. Went to... I forgot. Went to Spaghetti Factory. R.I.P. R.I.P. All right. Um... First date, where? Shooting pool. Shooting pool, all right. <laughs> you were testing her, weren't you? All right. Gene, you and Joanne, where's your first date? We went to, it's on the Vista Road, it's called Mother Tucker's, it's a restaurant. Mud Tucker's. Mother, Mother Tucker's. Mother Tucker's. <laughs> <laughs> a little provocative there. <laughs> <laughs> Washington's. Robert, where'd you take your bride? See a uh, play? Play? Out to dinner. Whoa! Don't wait. 
He wasn't messing around. <laughs> I'd say you got uh, what you came for then. Uh, Smith's. There's a restaurant called Sabun. It was up off Wesley Capital Road. Sabun. Restaurant. Willie was wine down you, wasn't he? <laughs> All right. Lazenby's. Went fishing. Whoa! Ask who caught the most fish. Not me. Wow! <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't want to go. Well, Danforth, how about you round us out? Applebee's. Applebee's. That sounds like me then. We All got right, stood up by all of our friends. Oh, that's right. I've heard that story. That's pretty cool. We got stood up by our friends. Um. Like something about y'all's story I remember it was really neat. Anyway, uh, Kelly and I met on a blind date at Panera. Uh, we set we were set up by by family. Um, men, think about this. Raise your hand if you can still remember. This is just to the men because my wife's not here, so I don't can't speak for her. Uh, I showed up in my steel toe boots straight out of work. And she got dressed up in a little dress. I mean, it was, I smell like spaghetti sauce, and it went great. Men, can you remember, can you still remember the high that you were on that date? Can you remember the feeling you had? Like the first time you held her hand. The first time that she led on that she liked you. Simple. You've spent your whole life with them now. You've gotten used to things. But do you remember the first time, there was a first time for everything. There was a high you were on. It is that high that we feel when we meet someone of the opposite sex that we like. Part of that mystery, that high you're on, is the differentness between you and her. She wasn't like me. Kelly's hair wasn't like me. Her makeup. I didn't have makeup. She didn't dress like me. She didn't speak like me. She was a lot prettier than me. She was like me, but she wasn't like me. She was completely different. Same species. Other than that, different. And part of that was why I got butterflies. It was the differentness between us, that the high that I was on. Part of the reason we see the rise in homosexuality today is because for various reasons, including hardcore pornography, sexual promiscuity, hypersexualized culture, confusion of gender in the home, for all these reasons, more and more men no longer sense that differentness with women. Instead, they find another man. And vice versa with women. Because of our sin, we have distorted the natural differences that God said are good. The lie is that we get to determine who we are. The truth is that God has created man and woman as equal, yet physically different, with different complementary roles. And He did it for a reason. You would be amazed at how many people oppose the statement that just came out of my mouth. 
Here's another question. Why does the idea of complementing sexes even matter? Well, here's the first one. If you want the human race to continue, you have to believe it. Homosexuals have still yet to produce a baby. Biologically, they just can't do it. There is no populating the earth other than complementing sexes. Complementing sexes are the fabric of marriage. How many of you, raise your hand, male or female, whoever, how many of you, raise your hand, can say that you understand yourself more today after having been married to your spouse? Raise your hand. By understanding the differences between the sexes, we understand ourselves. And that's by God's design. The New York Times published an article in 2008 discovered that female athletes rupture their ACLs at a rate as high as five times that of males. It's just something that came out. The inference was that male ACLs are stronger. Liberals were outraged. How dare you say that? What are you saying, women are weaker? No, science says men's ACLs are stronger. Our culture refuses to recognize that God has made males stronger and faster because their design is different than that of females. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean that females are inferior. We're going to get into that. Adam is designed to work. Adam is designed to protect. Now, 1 Peter 3, 7 says that women are weaker vessels. But don't mix that because you've got to read the whole verse. I'll just read it for you. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Here we go. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So the biblical model says that yes, women are weaker, but they're equal and they're co-heirs with men. Amen. There is a reason that a male's testosterone level is 11 times higher than a woman's. This is basic biology. There is a reason that women generally tend to be better at feeling out people. Biology and physiology attest to God-ordained differences. Now, the, 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 where this gets dangerous is our, uh, a couple, like I think three or four years ago, our government attempted to lower the physical standards of our nation's military so that women could occupy every post that a man could. And when people pushed back on that and said, well, don't we want like the strongest people being in the Marines, so to speak? They'd go, oh, says you're a bigot now. You, you don't think women can be in the army. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. Let women have every opportunity that a man does, but let our physical standards reflect what we know men and women are created to do. I'm, I'm just telling you, I don't want an entire group of women on Zero Dark Thirty. Some of y'all might even know, not know what that is. SEAL Team Six. If a woman can do it, let her be in it. Don't lower the standards so that she can be. And the point is not the military. The point is our culture is committed to this agenda regardless of, of basic human physiology. Are you starting to see the problem? The sexes are different and they're different 
for a reason. Here's the big question. This is the last thing I'm going to have you go. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. This is, I would say, what most people believe is the central text in the Bible on marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So when we look at a man protecting and leading and giving his life for his wife, that picture of love is designed to mirror the headship of Christ over the church. Did you catch that? And when we see a woman submitting and serving and helping her husband, that picture of love is designed to point to the submission of the church under the headship of Christ. Did you see that? Now let me clarify before we go on here. Biblical male headship does not mean that all, that all men have authority over all women. Let's clarify that. Okay, My wife does not submit to Jean. Margaret Washington does not submit to me. I think oftentimes people think that's what Christians believe. That's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible says. When we talk about headship and submission, we're talking about the context of marriage because marriage and only marriage is God's special creation to reflect the gospel. Once we understand this truth, we understand one more reason that we're seeing the legalization of same-sex marriage and the sexual revolution and the divorce epidemic and the destruction of the American home. Satan hates the idea of marriage because Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates the concept of marriage because it points to the very thing that will inevitably destroy him, and that's the gospel. When we fight for biblical marriage, we fight for the gospel. Because they are linked and that's the way God created it. Now, what you didn't hear me say was heterosexual marriage. I said biblical marriage. There's a difference. There are plenty of heterosexuals who are currently married who don't have a clue how to reflect the love and character of Jesus in their marriages. So, while we don't dehumanize and degrade homosexuals, we also don't honor their unions as marriage because, of course, they're not marriages. But we're not assuming that heterosexual marriages are necessarily God-honoring marriages. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus says something really strange. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor they're given in marriage. So in heaven, for the rest of eternity, 
after we die, we're not married. Did you catch that? Scott, you and Emily will not be married in heaven. Are you okay with that? Why do you think that is? In light of what we know now about why marriage exists, why do you think God says that? I know you know it. You've said it many times in small group. Because only the gospel lasts forever. Only the gospel is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Marriage is a temporary union pointing to the eternal wedding between Jesus and the church. God made marriage in order to call attention to the gospel. The Bible begins with marriage with Adam and Eve, and it ends with marriage with Christ and His bride. That's why we're not married in heaven. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7 that he wishes all were like him in singleness. The ultimate point of marriage is to point to the greater union. Paul says if you can do it, you don't got to get married. But better to be married than to burn with passion. This is what John Piper and Wayne Grudem say about singleness. Since human marriage is the shadow of the reality of the union with Christ and the church... No believing single person will miss out on the reality of marriage even if God calls him or her to live without the shadow. Does that make sense? Meaning, if the gospel is the point, if the marriage between Christ and His bride is the whole purpose for which we live and die, if you're not married in this life, you're not missing out on the big shebang. Marriage, earthly marriage, is not an end unto itself. What's the end of marriage? The gospel. But we treat marriage today often like a Disney <coughs> ending. They lived happily ever after. No, no, no. The, he- the ha- happily ever after comes when? When we die. I think, I think when Kelly and I got married, we succumbed. Well, Kelly did. Not putting her on the bus. That's just the way it was. Kelly kind of thought it was going to be all roses, puppy dogs, and butterflies. And then we got married, and it was not. But the reason that is because marriage is only a shadow of the real marriage. She was putting all her hope for her happiness in me. And I honestly think that's how we groom a lot of our kids. No, your job as a parent should be to groom them to have faith in Jesus so that by the time your little girl gets married, she understands that no matter how good looking that guy is, no matter how much money he makes, no matter how big his truck is, he can't satisfy her. Jesus can satisfy her. Therefore, when you tamper with the order and authority of marriage, you tell a lie about the gospel. Husbands, if you deal harshly with your wives, you're reflecting a harsh, unkind Savior and Lord. Wives, if you usurp the authority of your husband, if you wear the pants, you're reflecting a rebellious, power-hungry church that craves its own authority instead of the Lordship of Jesus. If we divorce our spouse, we're telling the world that God's love is conditional and He'll disown us if He gets tired of us. Men, you need to understand that the way you choose to lead your home is declaring a message about the God you serve. And here's the thing. 
I think our culture thinks that men are just going to figure it out. Hey, he's fine to be a man. He'll get a job and he'll figure it. No, no, no. I know plenty of people that got a college degree, made a lot of money, got a job, went to work, had a family, and they don't have a clue. We have to teach our kids these things. The problem is that men don't know what it means to be a man. Women don't know what it means to be a woman. It's May right now. Look at all the kids on prom night thinking that's what manhood and womanhood means. Why? Because the women's identity is wrapped up in their bodies and men's is wrapped up in whatever's in the, in the breeze that day. For the men who are prone to rule instead of leading, don't stop at Ephesians 5.24. Remember it says, yes, the wife submits to her husband, but men, that means you've got to give your life for her. We're going to talk about that. Men have to be taught godly leadership. Remember, Christ didn't come in and coerce the church. He wooed His bride. He loved her. He died for her. For the men who just like to sit back and make all, let the woman make all the decisions, Christ pursued the bride. He took the initiative. I really think complacent, apathetic, lazy husbands have destroyed people's image of what a family and a marriage should be. And it has nothing to do with personality. We're going to talk about that. Just this week, well, we'll skip that. God wants authority. This is, this is a big point I want to make. God wants authority and self-sacrificial love to mark biblical manhood, and He wants submission and respect to mark biblical womanhood. Men are called to be leaders in the home simply by virtue of the fact that they are male. It's not a competency issue. It's an issue of God's design. And that fact is exactly what our culture hates. The problem is, I think, um, men think that it's about traits. Like, uh, I got a big, you know, I don't have the personality. She's kind of the one that does everything. Well, let her lead. A household can look a thousand different ways. And a woman submitting to her husband can look a lot of different ways. I think our culture, the problem is our culture thinks that a woman submitting means she's a footstool. I often hear from women that cases where the woman makes more than... I remember one time Kelly got that job at the adoption agency. And I remember there was one month she was just rolling in the dough. And that was the very first month I ever looked at our bank account. I was like, oh my gosh. My wife made more money than I did. And she told me too because she figured it out too. And I remember going, ooh, the dynamics change a little bit. You can feel it. But I am still the man. Okay? Robert, I hate to use you as an example. Robert's probably not as sprightly and as strong as he once was. (laughs) But Robert's agility and muscles have nothing to do with God's design for the Washington marriage. One of the two biggest worldly reasons today why people may think that male headship in the home is archaic and outdated is one, they've either seen it abused or they've never really seen it work. 
But seeing a godly marriage where the man leads with godly authority and the woman submits to the man and she's actually empowered and encouraged and supported and she's not threatened, you've never seen that? If you've never seen that, it's one of the biggest witnesses to the beauty of marriage. Let me tell you, whether a man is six foot tall or five foot tall, whether a man drives a four-wheel drive or a little whatever Lydia drives, whether how successful a woman is or not, when a man gives himself to loving his wife and meeting her needs and caring for her, nine times out of ten, finances and body type don't have anything to do with it. Our culture thinks that male headship in the home means women are worth less than men. Our culture is telling us that authority means superiority. That's a lie. And that's a lie from Satan that he peddles with tons of Christian women. That's why America wants to do away with gender. Elizabeth Elliot, wife of the famous missionary Jim Elliot, said this of uh, her being a wife. Submission is my strength. Christina Fox is a licensed counselor. This is what she writes. And I want you to give you a little background. She says that when she was a young girl, she was belittled, she was abused, she was put down. And she had a very negative connotation with the word submission growing up. Now today she works for Desiring God. She's a counselor. This is what she has to say. When it comes to the kind of submission that lingers in my memory from childhood, it's not the kind of submission that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5. Submission is not about forced control. When a man leads his wife, he's leading her to depend on Christ and not on himself. The kind of leadership a husband provides his wife is to encourage her growth and grace and prepare her to be a co-heir in the kingdom of God. So when a man leads well, he's not leading her to depend on him. He's preparing her to lead with Jesus. I think it's important that we make this distinction. There's a difference between being authoritative and authoritarian. Authority has become a bad word in this country, but I think the reason for that is so many women haven't seen Christ-like authority in action. I used to be a youth pastor in Baton Rouge. I would pull out the word authority sometimes. Even really godly young girls, I would mention like male headship in the home. They'd be like, say what? Bob grew up like when the TV show was probably Leave it to Beaver. You watch Leave it to Beaver, you watch The Cleaver Home, you can basically absorb biblical principles in marriage just by watching that family. Newsflash, Leave it to Beaver, gone. See, we used to be able to pick up basic, decent, biblical principles from TV. You can't do that anymore, and we cannot assume as the church that people are going to pick it up unless we pick up the Bible and read it to them. We can't rely on culture because the culture is against us. But the, the culture was never really for us, though. Where else do we find equality and authority? I preached on it Sunday. Man, nobody's listening. That's fine. The Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The Son and the Father are equal, different roles. 
This is what Gavin Peacock says about biblical womanhood. When a wife respects her husband in the way that she speaks to him, she shows her children in the world that Christ is a leader worthy of respect. She reflects the way Christ respects the authority of the Father. He never speaks disrespectfully to Him or about Him. God did not give a wife a lobotomy when He gave her a husband. She doesn't need to always agree with Him to respect Him. But there's an attitude to authority that the Lord does want her to have. All Christian women must realize that they are that kind of woman. A Proverbs 31, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3 kind of woman. This is all over the Bible. Years ago, I had a friend. In fact, I had a recent friend kind of said the same thing. He was having trouble at home with his wife. Um, she was not raised in a Christian home. He was. And she did not, just told him flat out, um, I don't have to obey you. You're not my authority. We're equal. See, to her, equality meant Lack of authority. And he came to me, he's like, Avi, she doesn't get it. He's like, how am I going to get her to submit to my authority? Like, and she just, she just told me, you know, she's, she's out, she's basically just telling me off, you know, told me off from my parents. And I just keep telling her, this is the way it is. Submit. And I could just tell, he understood what the church is supposed to do, which is submit to the authority of Jesus. But he still didn't really understand what Jesus does. See, Jesus didn't come in and go, hey guys, hey, hey, look, hey. will be created as the eternal home of the Son and His bride. It is not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible within which the other themes find their places. And if the Bible is telling a story of married romance, no wonder that the demonic powers would forbid marriage. Every happy marriage whispers their doom and proclaims Christ's triumph. Marriage about the gospel. Does your marriage reflect that? Because if it doesn't, you're not honoring God in your marriage. And I wanted to end with that because I think that God, the gospel in a marriage is kind of like an engine in the car. It's not going to run well unless you are loving your spouse in the way that God has proclaimed is good. And that says, love my wife as the Christ loved the church and wife love your husband as the church loved Jesus. Does your marriage reflect that? Because we're going to go another four weeks and you're going to hear me say it time after time. Marriage about the gospel. I'm not going to give you steps to a good marriage. I'm not going to tell you do this and don't do that. I mean, I'm a little on the way. But we need to come back to not do this and don't do that. We need to come back to this is who God made you to be. And if we can't fulfill gospel love in our marriages we are becoming less than what God intended us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank You for another day where I got to love my wife 
and I got to see my need for your grace. Father, I pray for the marriages in our church. I I pray that they reflect the supremacy of your son Jesus. Father, give our, our women here the humility and the love and the faith and the courage to follow humbly their husbands. Give our husbands and our men here the love and the humility to give their very lives for their bride. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen.